All right, welcome back to the conversation. We are joined here today by David Sirota, who is the founder of The Daily Poster. Uh, David, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. You had an interesting scoop recently about the enemies of raising a minimum wage taking a victory lap after uh, it managed not it, it did after it didn't get into the COVID relief package. How did you come across this, and what 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 was the meaning of this to you? So we got a tip from somebody inside a, a company called uh, uh, Inspire Brands. Uh, Inspire Brands is a is an umbrella organization that uh, runs and owns a number of major fast food chains, uh, including uh, Jimmy John's and Arby's and uh, and Dunkin' Donuts, uh, and. What the tip was, was that the company, Inspire Brands, was telling its employees, was actually taking a victory lap with employees, saying uh, that it had successfully defeated the Raise the Wage Act, successfully kept it out of the stimulus bill. Uh, and so it was a very explicit kind of uh, spiking of the football to say to employees, look at what we did. We managed to prevent in our low wage industry, we managed to prevent the federal government uh, from raising the minimum wage to $15. And in addition to it, uh, it was telling employees that it is now working hard to stop the so-called PRO Act, the uh, bill, the democratic legislation to uh, make it easier for workers to join a union. So a very clear example of a low wage employer uh, proudly telling its employees uh, that it is effectively trying to keep wages extremely low. Now, the other uh, fun part of this story, I put fun in quotes, is that the owner of Inspire Brands, I mean, this is almost like something out of a cartoon. The owner of Inspire Brands, uh, the majority investor, is a private equity firm uh, named after an Ayn Rand character, oh, right. uh, Rourke right. Capital. Uh, so, you know, I mean, if you were going to create a caricature out of this story, like a comic book version of this story, uh, you would have an Ayn Rand character named private equity firm bragging to its employees that it had helped uh, prevent the federal government from raising the starvation wage of its workers. Mm -hmm. And when you when you say to its employees, I'm I was assuming and tell me if I'm right or not, that this went to the management and executive level, that they were not spiking the football in the in the face of their shift workers. You know, hey, what you know, welcome to welcome to your 7 a.m. shift after you uh, wash your hands. We've got a great we got a great piece of news to share with you about what your company accomplished. Is that, is that right? Or did that yeah, I mean, go Inspire Brands is the yeah. umbrella group. And so it's right. sort of the corporate management of the of the chains. Uh, and so it was essentially the um, the government relations and lobbying branch of that company telling the rest of that sort of corporate right. uh, umbrella organization, hey, look at what we did. Uh, we managed to stop uh, the minimum wage. And and to, if it isn't already obvious, it's worth saying that, uh, that of course, uh, many of the employees in the, the shift workers in the brands themselves at Jimmy John's, at Dunkin' Donuts, at Arby's, are not being paid a $15 minimum wage. So right. essentially preventing that from happening uh, boosts the profit uh, of the chains, boosts the profits of the uh, umbrella organization, boosts the profits of Rourke Capital. Right. And if they were being paid $15 an hour, at least you'd see them lobbying for it. That's what you see companies do. You know what? If, if they're already doing something, then they're happy to lobby for the government to force 
uh, force their competitors to do it. The the franchise question is interesting, and you and you get into that later in your piece when you talk about the PRO Act, which is which is the you know, the, the the union reform legislation that that's being discussed. And the Inspire talks about its fear of the the new laws linkage between franchises. Uh, for, of, you know, franchisees and and the parent company, because what a lot of people probably might not understand is like in, if you if you're if you run one subway shop, you you're you're probably you're starving yourself. Like you're the, you're the boss of that subway, but you're probably going into debt. Uh, it, you know, it's only the people that wind up owning several dozen of these chains that that make any money. And it it sounds like what they're nervous about is that the Pro Act would say no that's an exploitative relationship too you know you, yeah. you can you can you can no longer have somebody uh, that runs a franchise for you and just don't pay them they work you know 120 hours a week but th- but but you but they are effectively an employee but not an employee un- under the law that's absolutely right and i think i look i think there's a lot of implications uh for these corporate parent companies uh that what they're trying to do, what we've seen across industries, is corporate parent companies uh, want to have their brands out there, want to reap all the benefits of having uh, their brands out there, all the revenues. But then when it comes to workers organizing or franchisees uh, pushing for their own rights, they want to say they have no responsibility. You know, these are just, uh, you know, the workers at franchises are only employees of the individual franchise. They have no uh, economic relationship with the with the corporate parent company, the franchisees supposedly uh, are completely independent. They have no economic relationship with the corporate parent company. So they want to try to have it both ways, you know, gain the revenue, but pretend they have uh, no economic relationship uh, with these franchisees and these workers uh, for purposes of unionization, better pay, Mm -hmm. uh, fair labor standards. Right. And and, and not just, uh, not just, or, or not just, you know, uh, rake profits from them, but give them very specific instructions of how to run their businesses. You know, wh- how the seating is to be laid out, how long you microwave something, how long you deep fry something, what what products you can sell, what what price you can sell them at, what wages you ought to pay. You know, the, the idea that they're independent. It's like, well, what what part of this is is independent other than the fact that you're you're not directly Im- employed uh, by this. And I and I and I think that. Fran- franchisees, personally, I'd be curious for your take on this. I think people who run these franchises have uh, have a stronger uh, political, moral, ethical, and pragmatic claim to employee status of of these corporations than even a lot of gig workers. Like, you know, somebody who drives for Uber five hours a week might only want to do one day. You know, they all, might only want to do Saturday. And so, and so now, of course, you'd say, well, okay, anybody under forty or under thirty-five doesn't doesn't qualify for that. But there's nobody running a franchise that isn't throwing their entire heart and soul into that. I mean, I I completely agree. I I totally agree. And and look, this speaks to a larger issue of the relationship between uh, employers and employees and the effort by employers to use misclassification to pretend Mm -hmm. that their employees, their workforce, isn't really their workforce. I mean, we have seen, as you mentioned, in the gig economy, but the franchise franchise economy, if you will, is also a, a similar place where these big companies are playing around with, are trying to game essentially the classification system. What mm-hmm. is an employee? What is a work 
worker who is my actual uh, workforce. And they're trying to gain that so that they don't have any effectively have any responsibility to follow the, the laws. Granted, laws that haven't been updated in many, many years, the, right. the sort of old fashioned laws that presumed a much more simple relationship between employer right. and employee and and the gig working the gig economy i mean that's a, a great example i mean there was a case a while ago i'll probably sort of slightly get some of the details wrong but where uber was basically saying you know these are not our employees you know the the the, the ride sharing companies these are not really our employees they're all independent contractors and then at one point some of the employees said well if we're all independent contractors but we're all being directed uh, by your app, by the central uh, uh, data situation, by the by the app itself. Then you're essentially creating price collusion, and you're violating antitrust laws. Right, right. Like either we're your workers, uh, and you're mm -hmm. not violating antitrust, or we're not your workers, and you're you're effectively creating a, a price cartel uh, over what what we can charge uh, per ride. So. What that spotlighted again is that these companies, there's no like central principle, there's no central ideology, there's no central viewpoint about what an employer and an employee is. The only thing that connects all of these things together is that the company is trying to evade as many uh, responsibilities as possible. Amazon, another absolute master of misclassification and and sub subcontracting you know contractors that have subcontractors that have subcontractors people in the warehouse uh might you might think they're amazon employees might call them amazon employees but you'd find out that they actually work for you know a three layer down subcontractor and that's on the logistics side the driver side um and elsewhere as you 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 know daily poster also you know wrote recently about an amazon effort uh to to uh, fight against efforts by by workers to bring uh, bring about a little bit more safety um, into into the workplace. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? Sure. Um, so the New York pension funds, led by uh, New York City Comptroller uh, Scott Stringer, put forward a pretty simple shareholder resolution. Uh, they the the pension funds own about a half million shares of stock of Amazon. And every year, companies have their annual meetings where shareholders are allowed uh, to bring forward uh, initiatives to ask other shareholders to vote on it because the shareholders are the owners of the company, asking the shareholders to vote on various policies that they want to see implemented at the company. So Scott Stringer, on behalf of New York pension funds, brought forward a, a shareholder resolution uh, simply asking Amazon's management to more transparently detail uh, how and really if uh, they have taken adequate steps to protect Amazon's workers uh, from the pandemic. Uh, and they put forward this very simple resolution. And in the uh, supporting material for the resolution, they said, look, there's all sorts of evidence that you actually haven't <laughs> protected employees. <laughs> and this is a problem for the shareholder value of the company. Uh, they made a sort of an argument that, you know, making sure our workers can work and stay healthy is actually a shareholder uh, value issue. And what Amazon did in response to this was Amazon went to the now Biden Securities and Exchange Commission and asked the SEC to bless its move to eliminate this shareholder initiative from the ballot. That at the annual meetings, uh, these companies uh, put forward a ballot where shareholders are allowed to vote on these initiatives, the initiatives that qualify. 
But what Amazon is trying to do is trying to prevent even a vote from happening. They went to the SEC and said, listen, our plan is to not even include this on the shareholder ballot. Uh, and we want the SEC to bless this move. And the reason companies want when in these kinds of situations want the SEC to block this move, these kinds of moves and to bless it is because they're afraid that if they block, if they don't put the shareholder initiative on the ballot, that they'll get sued by shareholders for violating basic securities laws. So the idea is if the SEC says it's okay, then you can effectively block it without having to be having to worry that you're going to get sued. So that's what the, what Amazon is asking the SEC. And Amazon is, is basically what's interesting is they've said two things in defense block, of, you know, in their rationale. They've said one, we're already facing lawsuits uh, over our treatment of workers. So even having to publicly detail how we've treated our workers and whether we've protected them uh, may complicate those lawsuits. Uh, and they've also said the, that- The Trump defense, I'm getting audited, so. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'd, exactly. I'd love That's to share my point. taxes, but. Exactly. And then there are other defenses. This would interfere uh, with so-called normal business operations. And there's a longstanding uh, SEC rule that says, uh, essentially, uh, shareholders cannot interfere with day-to-day -day business. Uh, but again, all these pension funds are asking for is a simple report. Just tell us what you've actually uh, been doing. So to my mind, the fact that Amazon didn't just say, OK, look, here's, you know, here's everything we're, we, we've done. The fact that Amazon doesn't even want this to be voted on really begs the question, like, what are you trying to hide? Like, what, what, like clearly, clearly you there's something you don't want to say. And 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 that to me is, is sort of the smoking gun. I mean, one of their problems with transparency is that whenever they do come forward with some claim, it's refuted often by Ken Klippenstein or somebody over the Daily Poster within you know hours or days because they turn over staff so fast that they have not created any loyalty. There's some loyalty among the executive class, but it's it's a it's a famously vile kind of toxic corporate culture. As, as well, where, where people are are just you know driven driven into dust. Um, there have been a couple interesting articles about that. And obviously, they're compensated much better than than their than their warehouse colleagues, so it's it's not remotely comparable. But it does go to the loyalty that people have. And so, as soon as Amazon makes a claim publicly, if that claim isn't true, the public's going to learn it, you know, within 12 hours, uh, because either an ex worker uh, has the documentation to to prove it wrong. Or a somebody who doesn't mind soon being an ex-worker uh, is 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 happy to share it because they're just so out outraged at at their bosses over that. Have have you what experience have you had reporting on uh, on on Amazon over at uh, Daily Poster? Well, I mean, we we've done a lot on their on their filings on sort of we we do a lot of document based reporting uh, and and you know it's it's interesting just as a general rule I would encourage folks who are listening to this. To, to take some time uh, to read, you know, stuff like 10K filings, mm -hmm. uh, stuff like uh, shareholder resolutions. Uh, you know, what's interesting is that I think people don't know about it. And frankly, it is kind of buried on the SEC's website. I, I, I'm sure that's just a coincidence. But <laughs> there is a fascinating piece of the SEC's website where just a, a log of all of the incoming shareholder resolutions and then the detailed responses that the companies then put forward to the SEC. Uh, and in their detailed responses, you know, they, they say all sorts of things. And the important thing to know is that what they're saying to the SEC, 
officially uh, like under the law those things have to be accurate you can't like you i mean i'm sure regulators get lied to a lot but the point is is that you lying to a regulator uh is technically not legal so the point being that when you read amazon's correspondence i mean for instance as an example um last year they blocked a similar uh, resolution uh a similar worker safety resolution uh at the very beginning of the COVID outbreak. Uh, and you know, they basically argued that, hey, we're already implementing all sorts of safety measures. So this uh, shareholder resolution uh, doesn't need, uh, is sort of, we, we've already substantially implemented what mm -hmm. this resolution is asking. Now, I would argue that obviously that wasn't the case, right? I mean, we, we've seen, you know, the, just, to, just this week, uh, NBC News reported that there have been so many uh, complaints at the NLRB over safety, over mistreatment of workers, uh, that they're uh, putting, they may package them all together into one mega case. So obviously, uh, Amazon had not substantially uh, implemented uh, a basic request uh, for um, the company to better respect union organizing rights and protect worker safety. Uh, so it's always important to read uh, what these companies are saying to their investors. I mean, it was Elizabeth Warren, by the way, uh, who a couple of years ago put together a really fantastic report uh, in which uh, she essentially uh, uh, contrasted uh, what companies were saying, this is not Amazon, but other mm -hmm. companies, were saying about, I think it was the fiduciary rule, a rule to basically make sure companies better treat uh, in, investors, you know, regular mm -hmm. rank and file investors, that they were saying one thing in public, like, oh my God, this rule is going to destroy our whole business. And then to regulators, in comments to regulators, they were saying, actually, you know, the uh, uh, this rule won't really hurt our business all that much. And the point is, is that the discrepancy between what mm -hmm. they say publicly and what they say to the regulators, essentially, if those two things are different, they're lying to one set of people. And if they're lying to regulators, that is a really serious mm -hmm. problem. So all that's a long way of saying, I encourage anybody who's interested in, in Amazon uh, and its business practices to really take a look at its SEC filings, to really take a look at how it responds uh, to these kinds of resolutions. Mm -hmm. We got a couple minutes left before I let you go. Uh, but before we went on air, you and I were talking about Ghostbusters. And yes. it may seem like there's no segue there, but it is about the ideology uh, that, that undergirds all of this. You, you were making uh, a, a point about uh, the, the, me the message in the main part of the first movie. This is, this is 1984, the height of the, the Reagan era uh, that that that's that stuck out to you. And it stuck out to me, too. Yeah. So so I wrote a book uh, back in 2011 uh, called Back to Our Future, which was all about uh, the messages that were embedded in 1980s pop culture, the, really the political messages that were embedded in 1980s pop culture. And just to be clear, I don't think there was like a smoky back room where Hollywood producers kind of decided, hey, we're going to use, you know, pop culture to indoctrinate people. I don't think that's how really, you know, kind of entertainment pop culture really works. Oftentimes, entertainment pop culture is simply reflecting back right. the kind of right. cultural it's norms. It's just in the ether. Right. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and so if you really think about what the movie, for instance, Ghostbusters was saying, 
And it's very relevant to today and how we think about government, because arguably we are coming to the end, hopefully, knock on wood, the end of what we commonly understand to be the Reagan era. The Reagan era, one of the major themes of the Reagan era is, you know, quote, I'm from the government, I'm here to help, or, or you know, some of the most dangerous words in, in the English language. The idea being the Reagan era is a, an era that was extremely anti-government. And if you watch the movie Ghostbusters, if you really think about what that story is about, but the central villain of that story is an EPA administrator. The central heroes of that story are private contractors, arguably private military contractors. And in the, the crescendo moment of the movie, the EPA villain comes in and forces the private company to shut down uh, essentially its, its ghost protective grid, which then basically blows up the city. And by the way, who has to then save the city? The mayor, the public official, the public sector says, look, I, I, I don't know how to save the city. The military can't save the city. The only people who can really save the city are the private military contractors, not the government. Yeah. So what's really interesting to think about without, again, and I, I wanna be clear, I'm a fan of Ghostbusters. I love that movie. Like I'm not trying to be like super over serious about it, but it's always interesting to think about what the political messages of the pop culture uh, products, what those messages were, what they were sending to children. And one last point about this, why it's so important. It's These messages are important because when you watch a political television ad, you know you're watching a political television ad. So your kind of filter is up, you're, you're, you know you're, you're sort of being preached to or, or they're trying to indoctrinate you. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower, many, many you know, decades ago, uh, when he was talking about trying to essentially propagandize to the to the Soviet population, uh, he in one letter basically said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it's much more effective to do it through pop cultural products, the arts, books, literature, newspapers, and the like, rather than through overtly kind of 1984 style Orwellian propaganda. And so it's always interesting to think about the movies, the TV shows, uh, the cartoons that we watched as kids and what messages they were sending us, political messages that, may, again, may not have been like, you know, a conspiracy theory, but we're certainly creating the ways in which we think about things. And Ghostbusters, to me, it's like, you know, it's like the perfect example. Right. And we're not uh, canceling Ghostbusters tonight. Uh, but people should go to YouTube and like, go watch, go watch that clip, because when I watched it with my kids uh, about about a year ago, rewatched it after watching it as a kid. I was like, wow, that this EPA guy is a real jerk. Well, he is the <laughs> worst guy in this movie. Uh, this is quite a message. Uh, David Sorota, thanks so much uh, for joining us on, on the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Ryan.